Welcome back to season two of Evanston Rules. In our first two episodes this season, we are kicking it off with our very own Ron Whitmore. For those of you who have been following along, now is your chance to hear from and understand Ronnie's perspective on Evanston's rules and how he honors his ancestors and lives a life they would be and he can be proud of. Michael and I sat down with our co-inspirer, Ron, or Ronnie, to those of us who have known him for many years. Ronnie is always one who speaks his truth, and he doesn't hold back as we delve into a range of topics, including family, home, loyalty, racism, opportunities, and living in Evanston as a father, teacher, and unapologetic Black man. We discuss how the system that upholds our society has been designed to perpetuate inequality and why the background of the narrator matters. Rethinking the entire system makes for a deep and meaningful and necessary conversation. If you've ever wondered how you can be part of making a difference, Ronnie notes that there is no equity without action. We are proud and honored to share a piece of Ronnie's story with all of you. So let's start our conversation. Welcome, Ron. Thank you for having me, Evanston Rules, Michael Norris. <laughs> <laughs> now, if this is not a, a wonderful moment, what else would be, right? I mean, right? what a moment. Yeah. I call this the hot seat. So, Ronnie, you know, there are so many things we can talk about with you. But one thing that I've seen in you is that you really practice family first. Ubuntu, right? Tell us how and why your family ties are so strong. Yeah. Um, well, I, you know, I am the proud son of John Otis and Margie S. Whitmore. I have a sibling, an older brother named Doug. And I learned very early on my trips to Locksburg, Arkansas. Every summer we would pack up the station wagon and our fishing poles and our mini bikes. Mom always made food for us so we didn't have to stop. And when you think about the reality of that experience, as an adult, you begin to understand why they left at night. Because going down south, a Black family, stopping at specific places, you never knew what you were going to get. And we know from history that our people had to travel at night. And how far away are we from those times? From my perspective, we're not far enough, not even beginning to be far enough away from those times. We still have disproportionate incarceration, miseducation, police brutality, white supremacy, white entitlement. I mean, all of those things are very clear and prevalent in 2021. Yeah, I remember going into stores or gas stations my mom or my dad would say, don't touch anything. If you want something, always ask us. That warning was twofold. One, it was for our safety. But two, it was because my parents weren't really afraid and they didn't believe in turning that other cheek when it came to us. So I think that they coached us so they wouldn't be forced in a position to protect us because I know that they would have. But getting to Arkansas, it was this Black community. It was 100% loving of each other, 100% committed to each other. And all the elders would always be excited when Margie and Otis was coming home. 
and my grandfathers would cure a, a pig for us to take home. We would go fishing. We would sit on the porch of the elders and shell peas. My mom and dad would stop at everyone's house to take them to town, to bring them things. So my folks were proud of their community and so proud of what the community made them. I saw that level of humility and I saw that level of respect that they were able to pay forward. My grandfathers were best friends. One was a Methodist preacher and one had an 80 acre farm. He was a sharecropper and man, they were just thick as thieves and it was amazing times. So I, I grew up in a household that was unapologetic about who they were, but they taught me how to love, they taught me how to care, and they taught me to never forget who I was. Ronnie, you say they were unapologetic about who they were. What does that mean? Yeah, my dad was a son of a sharecropper and, and he did not even graduate high school, but academically he was one of the most brilliant men that I've ever met. When I brought a math problem, whether it was trig or algebra home, he was able to help me with it. And I watched him in his career. He worked for the Evanston Bus Company. He was the first black supervisor. When the Evanston Bus Company closed, he went to District 65 and he was a custodian. And before he retired, he ran the custodian department. Now here's the crux of what he was able to do. For a long time after he retired and even now, there are still people that I run into that my father hired. And all of them 100% were black. So even in the mid 70s or late 60s, he was really not just talking the talk about being comfortable in his skin. He made sure that he hired other black people that looked like him. So, you know, we've done a few of these interviews and as we've spoken to people, your father's name has come up. It's come up multiple times. Your dad being one of the good guys, one of the guys who quietly helped people wasn't looking for recognition, was simply looking to make other people's lives better, right? Yes. My, my dad, man, was an absolute beast of a man. He was, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, mm. Give me a second. He didn't need recognition. He just did, and he did because he believed, he did because he was caring, he did because he was strong, he did because he was intelligent. He, he cared about other people more than he cared about himself. And what did that teach you? That it's okay to care, that you don't need to be in the spotlight, that you don't need to have a recognition the work is more important than the accolades of the work. And there's another person yeah. Who's equally responsible, <laughs> right? Marge. Marge Whitmore, God rest her soul. She was CPC, consistency, present, and committed. She was very strong, proud, knew every swear word in the book, and reserved the right to always speak her mind no matter to who it was, no matter who was in the room. And she instilled that in her boys. I never saw my mom go off on anybody. But what I heard from people all over was that 
you don't push Marge Whitmore because Marge Whitmore will stand up. You know, the aunt that I'm taking care of now, there are countless stories where my mom said, so-and-so, if you don't shut up, I'm going to kick your ass. (laughs) 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 And I think everybody in the room knew she meant it. Marge was that strong black skillet on the stove that made everything taste better. That you cooked your fried fish in, that you made your spaghetti in, that's been used for so long, you know, the the seasons and the flavor was mixed into that cast iron and everything it touched, it just made it taste better because you knew it was nothing but love. That's my mom, the cast iron. The fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. Let's talk about Marley. Yeah, so, so Marley being my middle child is Marge Whitmore reincarnated. I remember when Marley was probably six years old and at our Thanksgiving, you know, we had all the family at mom and dad's house and there was a kid's table. And mom said, let's everybody get ready for dinner. And we looked at the adults table and Marley was sitting at the head of the table. <laughs> And my mom said, baby, you got to get up. The, the adults are going to sit there. And my father said, Margie, Marley wants to sit there. That's where Marley's going to sit. Marley broke the 50,000-year-old tradition based on her ability to exercise her will and her strength. I tease her. She teases me. She says, dad, I was raised by wolves. So what does that make me? Makes her a wolf. She's beautiful. She's brilliant. She's strong, she's determined, she's hardworking, and she has no quit in her. You know, and I don't know if that's the middle child syndrome, but she's a beast. (laughs) So let's go deeper because you have two other children. Tell us about those two other beautiful children. Yeah, so my oldest boy, Jonathan, he's actually 39 now, working in advertising, living in Atlanta. He is 100% of Whitmore. And he is his father's child. He talks like me, moves like me, and acts like me. When I talk about Whitmore genetic DNA, some powerful stuff. (laughs) Let's talk about Omari. Yeah, so my boy, Omari Akil, intelligent one who uses reason. He is also a beast. He is strong. He is smart. He's confident. One of the things that I'm most proud about all three of them is that they understand the beauty of their black skin, and they know their worth and value from a historic perspective as they move through 2020 and forward. How does a strong black man who's strong-willed receive and give to strong black children that he has raised? Well, I think a strong black man who is strong-willed is not without compassion and an understanding about the importance of submitting. I think that the humility which my parents showed me and taught me and my brother to have is kind of rooted in my friendships, in my workplace, and in my relationship with my kids. While I understood I'm still Papa Bear, I also understand what my thinking needs to be and create the space that allows them to grow and mature. I think that the parents' role is to be a gatekeeper when people need gate keys, but it's also to be a facilitator 
And most importantly, I think parenting is about knowing when to get out of the way and letting kids grow and be themselves. Mm -hmm. That's what I learned from my parents. They were the catalyst. They were always there. They were that third voice that I heard if I was going to make a bad decision. But they were trusting enough of us to allow us to get out there and figure it out. And they were confident in us enough to know that we would make the right decision. But then they were in tune enough to hold us accountable when we were wrong. That is all in the preparation, right? So is there anything in the more recent couple of years that you've discovered about you and your parents and that connection that you knew was there? At their 50th wedding anniversary, it was this big surprise party that we gave them. We had all our relatives in town and I saw my mom and my dad dance. And I saw my dad jumping around the floor like he was a pig in mud, he was so happy. And I saw my mom doing her little moves in such a cool way. And right then I knew by the look in her eye and the look in my dad's eye, because there was nothing but love there, I knew who was running the relationship. And it was clearly my mom. But just their love for over 50 years. Um, you know, they, they taught my brother and I to try to live by the golden rule. But they always wanted us to treat people like we would want to be treated. And that was like a constant in our house. Accountability was also very big. Um, we weren't really allowed to blame everybody else the conversations always went to what did you do and what can you do better? And they taught us to be very reflective of ourselves and to hold ourselves accountable for trying to do the right thing. What does that look like? Well, it's, an, it's action. It's what you do. It's not what you talk about. It's how you treat people. And I think evidence of that has been in the friendships that, that we've been able to forge and keep. It's those dynamics that I think help us pay it forward. And it's also how we teach our kids. Mm -hmm. So I think their influence keeps resonating through that throughout the generations of Whitmore's. The phrase from generation to generation. I hope my ancestors are proud of me because I just tried to do what I know they did. Which is? Be authentic, be consistent, be present, and be committed. How does that show up in your life? You know, I don't know that I'm finding out anything differently. I, I have always really valued the teachings that my parents gave me. I was always a doctoral student in their wisdom. I think to answer your question, I'm more in tune, even in their death, with doing things that might disappoint them or that would have disappointed them in me. So I mentioned a few minutes ago that third voice. I still ask my parents, because whatever you think, whatever you believe, I think energy never stops. So I always ask that energy, or I, I pull on that energy when I'm thinking about things with my children or thinking about things that I'm doing. Uh, and that always helps me kind of get through on the decisions that I make. What have you learned from your kids? That, that I can't fix everything and that I need to shut up and that they got it. You know, I did all I knew how to do. Like, I didn't know how to be a mom, but I tried hard. I could do hair. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So I just tried to be the best person that I could be for them. And even now in their adulthood, you know, Jonathan called me the other day and just said, Hey, pop, man, thank you for being such a great dad. And I was like, thank you for being such a great son. I don't know that I did anything except what I was supposed to do. And he talks about him being the kind of father that I am to him for his son. So again, John Whitmore and John Whitmore's father is speaking from the grave, right? In terms of modeling fatherhood. Mm. Youngest son, cohesive family, brother who is as close as you could be without being a twin, right? Yeah, yep. Yeah, I, I think that was the plan that my folks had. You know, I guess all siblings kind of dressed alike at one point when they were little, but but that was the plan that I'm sure my mom and dad had cultivated and put into place when we were born. You often see one, you see the other Whitmore. There's a closeness that's undeniable, always has been. Oh, that's my man. That's my frick. That's my frack. If I'm the peanut butter, he's the jelly. <laughs> you know, I mean, we're thick as thieves. We're 13 months apart, but it's almost like we can think for each other. It's almost like we're twins. I can anticipate what he's going to say and what he's going to do, and he can do the same things for me. And we take care of each other. That's what we were taught to do. And so from your chosen brother, James. <laughs> my other brother, for mm -hmm. real. Yeah, I like him actually better than I do my real brother. And this is, <laughs> and this is where you see... Ron Whitmore. <laughs> um, yeah, James and I and Doug have been together since junior high. And when we were away at college, and although his last name is Todd, he's definitely a Whitmore. And a word that is integral to who I see you as being that describes what I know about you, and that's loyalty. Yeah, I'm a ride or die kind of guy. If I'm with you, I'm with you. If I'm going to say it again, if I'm with you, <laughs> yeah, I'm that tick, right? So in the middle of a war, if it's me and you, I'm standing. I just, I don't know how to be any other person than that. Again, it, that goes back to what I watched my mom and dad do. You have been a lifelong educator, not just a family man, but one who has stood in the gap for lots of families and children and places actually where some people don't want to go right. to be an educator. Tell us what right. inspired that. My senior year in high school, I took an early childhood course from Jane Ellinger was a teacher at that point. Mm. The goal was to be a podiatrist. I, I always wanted a career where I would be necessary and where I could do something for people that look like me. And obviously the podiatrist piece was I knew one Dr. Key, so I wanted to have a job. And that senior year, I took the early childhood class, and we actually got to do practicums in an early childhood classroom, fell in love with the work. And Miss Ellinger at that point told me I'd be a great teacher. And that's what kind of cat catapulted my career. And I never really looked back. Um, I, I felt then and still feel that education is the new currency. And if you get, get people to believe in who they are and to know the truth about themselves, they can change their lives for the better. And that's kind of how I went into my work as a preschool teacher, as a kindergarten teacher, as the officer of early childhood for Chicago Public Schools, 
and as a principal at John and Smith Ivy World School for the past 16 years up until I retired. So I love molding minds, not just of the students, but of parents too. And let me unpack that for you a little bit. As a black man, as an early childhood teacher, there were often parents that had concerns or questions about who I was and what my motives were. And my motives were to educate kids. And it's funny that I still have kids that are now 30 that I taught in kindergarten that I'm still in touch with or that will find me and tell me that they were so happy that I was their kindergarten teacher. Or kids that were at Smith that have gone to college or that are on their way to college. Right. I actually got a text today of a kid that's going to Illinois and he said, I just wanted to tell you I'm on my way to college. Thank you. So it's my way to give back. It's my way to pay it forward because there were so many people that have done some, so many wonderful things for me. Having a black man as a teacher to give them guidance, to help set them on a road. And so these things hold. That was the beginning of your teaching career. How did your career flow from Orrington? So all of those students and families, whether they were in my class or not, I benefited more from those relationships, far more than I think they benefited from me. So Michael always says iron sharpens iron, right? I mean, they were sharpening my side of the sword as well. And, and my life is better because I had an opportunity to know them. Um, left Kingsley, went to Orrington to teach kindergarten, left District 65 and got a job. Uh, Paul Vallis recruited me to come work in early childhood. Got promoted by Arnie Duncan to be the officer of early childhood. So I was in that department for seven and a half years. And I got an opportunity to a little bit about how CEPS, how Chicago Public Schools works. And it was a fantastic experience, which was also like my careers kind of had three highlights. It it, it was a teaching, which was fabulous. There was the central office administrator experience that was fabulous. And then being a principal on the West side for the last 16 years up until my retirement was just an awesome experience. And the funny thing was how does this Evanston dude go to the West side and be a principal for 16 years? And I think once I kind of unpacked that for myself, it's like I cared. And I told the community, thank you for adopting me. I didn't do anything for you. You did everything for me. You supported me. You believed in me. You showed up when I needed you to. You helped me run a school. You helped the neighborhood embrace me. So that's how my career morphed and kind of how I look at it. Since you're not here to ask a question, I'm going to ask a question in a very Ronnie fashion. (laughs) I submit that though the community did help you, that though they were marvelous, that though you got a lot, I'm going to push that and say that you get what you give. Tell us about some of the inequities that you noticed while being in a school. Tell us about where your school was and what that looked like. My school is on the near west side, 1059 West 13th Street. The community is called The Village. It's one of the largest gentrification initiatives that's happening in the city of Chicago. I got there 16 years ago. 
It was a school that everyone wanted because it was an opportunity to get in there and turn the school around. Turning the school around, from my perception, is was making it white. And I refused to do that. I said, I'm not coming here and I'm not going to be the Negro that sells its people out. So we asked the community to believe in us. While there will be those that say, I didn't change the school enough. When you begin to look at the data on the ISAT or when you begin to look at the data on the NWEA, we moved the needle and we moved the needle big time. But we also were the only school that served the indigenous people of that community. And we were prideful. We were the first school in the city of Chicago to implement the IB program wall to wall in the hood and be authorized and reauthorized three times while I was there. No other school in the city of Chicago did that. And I'm saying that because that couldn't happen without such a fabulous community. And I think one of the biggest things that we did was a community believed in me, but I also believed in a community and we worked together to make some things happen. You know, it wasn't all easy. We've experienced a lot of trauma, a lot of difficult times, but we stood for what we thought was moral and ethical. And every day for 16 years, I gave that community 100% of myself, unapologetically. Tell us about some of the things that you did at the school. Well, so, you know, I want to go back to Joanne, Mrs. Wilkin. She reinforced, she reinforced the job, right? The job wasn't about you sitting in an office doing the paperwork. The job was about doing what you needed to do for your clients. And if that meant having... Explorers Club on Saturday, if that meant going to buy clothes, if that meant getting in your car when people missed the bus and picking them up, if that meant getting in your car when someone missed the bus in a snowstorm, you did it. So she reinforced kind of what the gold rule is. You treat people like you want to be treated for me. And because I tried to live my life that way when I got to Smith, it was the same thing. I, I think about education as a triangle, the, the school, the students, and the community. And if you can get two out of three of those, you'll do okay. So I made sure that I went into the community and I got to know the people in the community and that when I got invited somewhere, I showed up by myself because they had to trust me and they had to know that I'm trying to serve them. The other piece is I also spoke my mind. So I said, here's what I'm trying to do. I'm not gonna sell you out. I'm trying to have a good school in this community. I need your help. If you're with me, good. But if you're not, get out the way. And I think we just grew and began to develop a love and respect for each other. Tell us about some of the people that you got to know. So we would walk the community at the beginning of every school year before school started. And I wanted my teachers to see the community that they worked for and that they served. But I also wanted the community to see who served them. Because in order to move a needle, you have to know the people and respect the people that you're dealing with. I got to know the community, all of it, from the grandmothers to the gangsters. I got to know everyone in between. So Principal Wilkin, going above and beyond, which for some is not really about going above and beyond. It's just how you live your life. Well, I, I don't know. I, again. How about what I can say is this. I remember speaking to you and you were in a car 
and I heard you order some food and I asked you why you were ordering food. You ordered it and you got the toy that came along with the meal, right? <laughs> One of my kids probably missed lunch or was still hungry after lunch and they needed to eat. The story is a little more <laughs> than that even. And it was a little boy who wasn't getting good grades because he didn't have a place to do homework. You spoke to a teacher and you figured out that this kid should be able to do his homework at school, creative thinking. When the kid would get good grades, you talked to the kid and made a deal with the kid and asked the kid what he wanted for those grades. So who went to McDonald's and who got this kid exactly what he wanted? I try to be a man of my word. I have children and I would want their teachers, their principals to treat them like I would want them to be treated. So who am I not to do that for someone else's child? Who am I if a child needed a nap or was tired because he was up all night? Who am I not to let him have a nap in my office if he needs it without penalty? And then it's my responsibility if he misses two hours of instruction because he's tired and couldn't focus anyway, then it's my responsibility to make sure he's given every opportunity without penalty to make that up. So happy mind, happy body, happy child, learned child. School becomes a place that's theirs, that belongs to them. So let's go back to Evanston for a little bit. Was Orrington School your first experience? Kingsley. Um, Kingsley. When, yeah, when it was the early childhood center. And then I went to Orrington after four years. Tell us a little bit of those stories. And I'm more interested in some of the inequities you may have seen in the Evanston school system back then and how it informed you forward. Well, I didn't need Evanston school district to show me what the inequities were. I, I kind of knew that going into it. And the inequities, as they still are, Black children, especially Black boys, are being undereducated, undervalued, and marginalized. And... Jawanza Junkufu was doing some consulting with the district, Conspiracy Destroyed Black Boys, Volume 1, 2, and 3. And mm. reading his work was the platform for my voice because it was what I already understood. It was interesting. In my interview, Annette Grubman, who mm. they called her Little General, she was the principal at Washington School. And in my interview, God rest these gentlemen, Billy Cherry, Elmore Johnson, and a few others. And Annette Grubman asked me a question. She said, Ron, so what do you think would attribute to children of color failing in school, especially black boys? And Elmore, Mr. Johnson gave such a great story of how I answered. He said, Ron, you cleared your throat and you changed your seat. And you said, well, first of all, I don't think black boys are failing in school. I think schools are failing black boys for this reason. There's no acculturation of black boys. Education is too low motoritic for African-American boys where children are being asked to sit down and shut up instead of what they think and why and given opportunities to figure it out. And at the end of my answer, she jumped up on her feet and said, great answer. It wasn't the school district that taught me inequities. It was my black skin that taught me what the inequities were. Yeah, one quick follow-up though. So what was the experience as you went through the Evanston school system, what informed you based on this sense of self that you had as an educator and as inspiring, but you traveled through the district? So uh, again, I, you're asking me to pinpoint something that I saw. I saw opportunity. And I also had a very clear understanding that 
all boats rise in a high tide. Here's a thing that I saw when, when I had kids that were struggling academically, they stopped struggling. And there was evidence that they were moving academically. But then when I see those same kids in third grade, they were being pushed into special needs or they were being disciplined in behavior problems. And one of the things that I noticed was that the systems do a great job at choking the creativity in black boys. And they do that because no one wants to hear what they think and no one cares how they feel. It's like you want the little seal to catch the fish and clap. So I saw lights go on and I saw lights go off and it disturbed me. And most of the lights that were going off were for black children. I also learned very early that it just wasn't white folk destroying black children. It was black folk destroying black children as well. So I began to watch the duality between who really had the target on their back. And unfortunately, they all look like me. So I decided early on that I would work in the belly of the beast rather than complain about the beast. Now that does not mean, as Laurie said, for some of the kids that may be white, that they know I love them and they love me because I was about equity and fairness for all the kids that I came in contact with. So I noticed the disparities and I wanted to be the person that did something about it. So Ronnie, the need to be a support for black children and obviously having black male role models is so important. And the younger kids have someone who is knowledgeable and on their side is so important. But what about black girls? I find that we read about the adultification of girls, how they're not given a childhood. I think in some ways it's similar for boys, but certainly there's different treatment. How do we reconcile a system that is not wanting us to be there, that does not want our success? Reconciling a system is the same philosophy behind getting in a bathtub after you're dirty. You got to clean it up, right? You got to rethink what we're doing around achievement. We've got to rethink what we're doing around curriculum. I would love to see a system that incentivizes teachers for closing the education gap. I would love to see a system that would give a Lori's Bell a, a $10,000 a year pay increase. I would love to have them celebrated. I would love to have their students celebrated. One of the things that, that we've learned from talking to all the kids, all the people that went to foster school, and they said, no matter what color their teacher was, they knew they cared about them and believed they could learn. Our system right now does everything in its power to bastardize the fact that it believes that black and brown children can learn. And I don't care what anybody says, when we look at the data, the evidence is true. So when we leave the classroom, kids go home. So no matter what a child does in school, there's still the rest of the time. And so, yes, you were on the west side of Chicago, but these things happen in Evanston too, right? So one of the things that I've also learned is that all parents care. I haven't met parents that don't care. I've met parents that may not know what the status quo definition of caring is, but they care and want the best for their children. But again, what do you do for those parents that were also miseducated or that 
schools were institutions of disenfranchisement for them or left a bad taste in their mouth. How do you build back that trust that was broken for so many of our families? Again, what we did when I was principal at Smith, we made sure that all our parents were welcome. We made sure you had a voice. We made sure that you were listened to. We made sure that if you didn't show up, I would come to your house. Joanne Wilkin did that. And I watched her do that at Orrington. We were over on Wesley and Jackson almost every day, picking up kids, knocking at doors. So I had great role models that were unafraid to go and do what was needed to support children and families. And that's kind of what I took with me throughout my professional career. We talk about this a lot, and I think it would be good to address this. So let's talk about the duality in Evanston of Black people. Buckle up, buttercup. <laughs> good, good, good question, brother. Thanks for joining us for part one of Ronnie's two-part episode. Stay tuned for the second half of this compelling and important and heartfelt conversation with our co-inspirer, Dr. Ron Whitmore. Now maybe so